Watermark Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who are exploring the faith, welcome here. This morning, I wanna begin by telling you about someone you're actually strangely familiar with, but you don't know fully. And in order to do that, I'm going to have us step into British royalty. And in case you're like, oh my goodness, are you, t- you too sell out? It ain't what you think. Today we're gonna go back 350 years to 1667 under a different King Charles, King Charles II. King Charles II was not a godly king and he appointed a man to be bishop or a pastor over the Church of England, the Anglican Church, so he's in charge of that, he's responsible. He appoints this man, Thomas Ken, he was 35 years old, and five other bishops to rule over the Church of England. So you would think, as he has appointed them, he's like, all right, and now you're gonna do what I say because I gave you your office, now you're gonna bend the knee to my office. So when he was rolling through Thomas Ken's hamlet where he lived, the king sent word to him, Thomas, you need to vacate your house because I'm traveling out of town and my mistress, Nell Gwynn, who was England's famous actor, she's with me and she needs a place to stay so that the people don't talk. Well, Thomas Ken, God-fearing man, not a king-fearing man, said, no, I will not vacate my house to aid and abet your adultery. Amen is right. The king persisted. I don't think you understand. I'm not asking this as a favor. I'm telling you, as King Charles II, dread sovereign over the land, get out of your house so that Nell Gwyn can stay there. Thomas then called a builder and said, rip the roof off of my house. To his own personal loss, a person took a perfectly good roof and tore it to shreds so that his house, humble as it was, no longer had a roof, sent word to the king, my house is under repairs. I think Nell would be more comfortable elsewhere. And knowing that his mistress, this famous actress, would not wanna stay in an open air chateau was like, all right, but I will not forget what you have done. And King Charles II didn't forget what he'd done because when he tried to pass an act of indulgences, meaning you can pay for your sin, if you wanna commit a sin or if you have committed a sin, all you have to do is put some money in the coffer, you just give a little bit of money and your sin will be absolved. Well, there is one person who paid for sin once and for all and you can't monetarily pay for what Christ alone can pay. And so when the king said, bishops, pass the act of indulgences, these bishops said, No. So he said, fine then, throw them in the Tower of London, the bloody tower where people are beheaded. And so they were thrown in the tower, all six bishops, all the pastors over the Church of England. And then all of London rioted. All the people are in the streets like, let them out, let Thomas Ken out. And because there was total mutiny in the streets, King Charles II again was like, oh, What is it with these men? Fine, release them. And they pick up Thomas Ken and parade him through the streets of London. He's just this humble pastor. They're walking him through celebrating because he feared God and not this pagan king. 
Now I began by saying, I'm gonna tell you about someone who you're strangely familiar with that you do not know fully, and you're probably like, I don't know anything about Thomas Ken. Everything you just told me about Thomas Ken is altogether brand new. Well, when Thomas Ken was alone, he penned these words. It's a hymn, it's called Awake My Soul and With the Sun. Because Thomas Ken thought every day when I wake up, the second consciousness hits my mind, rather than, they didn't check their phones, I guess they checked their scrolls or I don't know what, but he's like, set your mind immediately upon the Lord and worship him before the world crowds in, before the lust of the flesh crowd in, before the worries of the day crowd in. Seek and worship God. Awake, O my soul, and with the sun. In the last stanza of this hymn that he wrote is praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all you creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thomas Ken wrote the doxology this incredibly God-glorifying hymn that we've sang for the last almost 400 years in the church. It's like, that's the song of the church that has been sang on repeat for almost 400 years, and it came out of that impoverished materially, though rich spiritually man who would not bow to the king. That's Thomas Ken. And in order to now bridge over to another person that we know in part but do not know fully, we're gonna talk about God. Because we do know him in part, but we do not know him fully. In fact, here in this life, he can't be fully known. Warren Martin, our senior director of equipping, we were talking about God, the Trinity, one eternal God in three persons, and he said, though you cannot know him fully, you can know him truly. I was like, oh, I'm so gonna share that on Sunday because it is true. And so today, the reason why we're talking about God in three persons, the Trinity, is because to, to know these truths of who God is and what he does changes everything. It changes how you live, how you work, how you love, how you worship, how you glorify God in everything. He changes everything as you understand him more in three persons and how he is at work in our lives. As it says in Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being, like our totality of our existence when plugged in rightly with God, that God-shaped hole, when God comes in and we understand him aright, though not fully, man, it changes everything. And so today as we continue in our series, made, made to worship, and we need to know who God is that we might worship him rightly, we continue on and we're gonna be in Genesis 1. Now, you need to know, as we're talking about the Trinity, today we're going to be like looking up at a night sky, and, and you're going to be able to, we're going we're to point to certain things and be like, okay, that's Orion's belt. Okay, now over here, that's the Big Dipper, and if you follow the handle of the Dipper, you're going to see the North Star. We're going to be able to make out some of the constellations, some of the ordering. But you need to know that what we're talking about today in the Trinity like, this is an upper-level seminary course over the whole semester, and even then you don't plumb the depths of the personhood of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we've got 40 minutes, so best of wishes with that. And yet, as we look at the stars outside of this room, if you go down any particular corridor of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the hypostatic union of Christ, that he's fully God, fully man, the indwelling of the Spirit, whatever it is, that's like looking at the night sky, and then seeing images from the James Webb telescope that's just like, boom! 
and the awe and wonder if you go down any particular path to explore more of who God is. And yet, like that telescope, even what you see, as mind-blowing as it is, still, they haven't it hit the edge of space and be like, okay, now we've got it. It's all in a nice, tidy box, and we're good. That's just more. We see dimly, 1 Corinthians 13, and one day we will know in full. So, Spurgeon said this regarding the Trinity. I think it's helpful. It is not your duty to comprehend, but to apprehend such truths as these. Because we can't fully comprehend. We can begin to know God has revealed himself in the scriptures and through creation and by the spirit. You can comprehend some, but the, but the real need is that we would apprehend, personally apprehend these truths and apply them into our lives. So let's begin, jump into the text. Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. There's the creation account. In, in English, the fourth word that appears in the Holy Scriptures is God. We're four words in. In the beginning, God. And we've got to just stop, like, who? Because the ancient Israelites, they're wandering through all these pagan lands with pagan gods and this pantheon of false gods, of false teachings that people are worshiping. And they would have gotten to that word, Elohim, and been like, okay, who? Who is this God that is leading us that, that actually created everything and it wasn't all those other false gods? And so know this up front. This is going to feel heady. But in general, here's where we're going. We're gonna talk about who God is and what he does. Specifically, and this is so powerful, what he does in your life in a very personal and intimate way. Who God is in three persons and what each of the three persons does at work in the life of the believer. And so, uh, for those of you who are like theology geeks, we're gonna scratch that itch today. And then for others who are like, I, I am so far from a theology geek, just can you tell me a little bit about God in a way that I can understand that I actually could apply to my life? We're scratching that itch too. First itch will be scratched in the first half, next in the second, here it is. Ontological trinity, you're like, oh, yes. Ontological trinity, that's the study of being, the study of personhood, ontos. It's, it's who a person is. So that's the first place that we're going. And the second one is the economic trinity. And you're like, what? God, money, recession, economic trinity? What are you talking about? It's a Greek term. Think like home economics, where it's like you're, you're trying to order a home. You're trying to order activities within the home. It's oikos, which is home, and nomos, which is law or rule. It's a construct word in the Greek. And so this is the, the rule of the law governing the life of a believer by God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this, y'all, this is the personal, eminent work of God in your life, the economic trinity. When I began to understand and apprehend this, like my eyes were so open and my life was so changed as I yielded to each of the three persons as one God. 
So that's what we're talking. Who God is, what he does. Let's begin. Who God is, ontological trinity. Now, what I'm not gonna do is talk about the egg and how there's a shell and there's the white and there's the yolk or the apple or H2O, that it's water, vapor, gas, or, or light, that it's particle and beam and heat. Because frankly, you can't take the created in order to describe the creator. You can't take what's finite in order to understand and apprehend the infinite. And, and me as a human can't fully explain deity. But he's revealed himself, and so we're going to move towards that, but we're not going to do it with an illustration. In our passage, Genesis 1, we had in the beginning God, full stop, and it's who. Who is God? And the word Elohim is plural and noun, which is a little bit of a head scratcher. Plural. Yet, when you get to the verb tense, after Elohim, well, actually in Hebrew this way, it's singular. So you've got a plural noun using a singular verb, and it's the first hint and inclination and revealing of like, wait, we are talking about someone altogether different here. Like, that's not typical Hebrew grammar. What's going on here with Elohim? Genesis 1.26 says, uh, and we're not there yet, this is day six, creation of humans, but it says, let us make man in our image. Now, sometimes people have tried to explain that away and be like, well, he was talking about the angelic realm, you know, the heavenly beings, because let us make them in our image. So he's talking about angels, you know, to try to explain it with the Trinity. It's like, well, hold on. Angels don't create. God creates. God alone creates. And secondly, nowhere in scripture are we said to be made in the image of angels. So this is God saying us, and yet another hint towards the Trinity and the revealing of it. And the more scripture you read, the more the lights come on and you see the fullness of who God is. And then you have in verse two, the spirit of God hovering over the face of the water. So the, the spirit seems to be there present over all. And so we've got father, spirit, and you're like, wait, where's the son? Where? Where, where is the son? Why would, why would the son have been left out from the Trinity? I've got my Bible open two-thirds of the way, and the reason why, I'm, I'm, I'm in John. And you're like, wow, you, you skipped a lot from Genesis to John. But I skipped a lot because the exact same phrase is used. There's an echo, a 4,000-year-old echo of in the beginning. And you know that the Jews who were the first Christians when they trusted in Christ, Messianic Jews, they would have read in the beginning and be like, okay, John, I see what you're doing there. We're talking Bereshit, the Hebrew beginnings. Like, you just, that's a throwback. What are you doing, John? Here's what he was doing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They'd have, they'd have stopped right there and been like, hold on, hold, hold, hold up. So we have a, a deity with deity, person with a person, yet we know the, the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. So this is not two gods because scripture interprets scripture. So we have one God, yet word with God. Then they would have continued and the word was God. Okay. Now their minds just blew a little bit more. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Jesus is God. And there would have understood Father, Spirit, 
Son in a more full way. And so the Trinitarian theology beginning, it says, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. And without him, not anything was made that was made. J.C. Ryle says this. Uh, he's, think like same kind of Puritan era in Britain. It was the whole Trinity, which at the beginning of creation, Genesis 1 said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, think now John 1, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. Let us make man. Let us save man. The Trinity at work in creation who he is, what he does. So in the first three verses of the Bible, you have the Trinity, which is really, a, it's a finite word. It's a, it's a man's attempt word to explain the inexplicable God that we know, who's revealed himself in scripture. And so we use the word Trinity around the second century AD as, as various heresies were creeping in. Uh, Athanasius, Tertullian, early church fathers, Philo, were starting to introduce this as um, a word that could be used, tri, three, unity, one, three and one. And so Trinity is a word. Now, some people will say, hey, look, you Christian, silly Christian, don't you know Trinity's not even in the Bible? You can read every page, every word, Trinity's not even in the Bible. You believe something the Bible doesn't even teach. And if this was like uh, a Muslim saying this to you, for instance, because they don't believe, they say Allah is one and he has no son. And so they will argue this to try to deconstruct a Christian's faith. And you could say, well, as a Muslim, surely you believe Allah is one? That's monotheistic, right? That's monotheism. They will absolutely say yes. So well, you do know that monotheism is not found in the Quran. Nowhere in the Quran does it say monotheism. It is a human term to describe the indescribable. And so it is. God in three persons. The definition of a trinity, and I, I want to emphasize a definition of the trinity, not the definition of the trinity. This is, this is an attempt, and there are many. I think this is an orthodox one. The one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is fully God, and there is one God. Now, with that in mind, uh, I think this is going to be helpful handholds that we can just like hang on to as we think about the Trinity and some of the aspects, qualities of him. So think of the acrostic do, D-U-E, as in give God the worship due to him. D is for distinction. Distinction means there are three persons, and those three persons are distinct. They have different roles in creation, in the life of a believer. They are not identical, they're distinct, and yet unity is the you, there is one God. Three persons, one God. And then the E is equality, that each is fully God. Do. I'm gonna throw up, not I, the team is gonna throw up a, an image that the church has used for over a thousand years of the Trinity. Now, this is not an illustration of the Trinity. This is a visual way to define the Trinity. And I'm sure it's incomplete in various ways, but the church for a thousand years, you'll see if you Google this, you'll just Google like Trinity image. You'll see this and you'll see in ancient like writings, people will like scroll this and scrawl it in the margins of their books. They were trying to like, put their human minds around this infinite God. And so what this represents here, 
So you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And inside the triangle, there is a bridge for the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet, you see, in the middle, there is one God. And also, you see, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. One God, three persons. Now, there were heresies that have crept into the church, and the first one that I'm gonna mention, frankly, this is the one I think Christians are most susceptible to believing. This came under Sibelius, and he introduced this heresy called modalism. Fancy word, here's all it was. Because he couldn't comprehend the Trinity, and so therefore, in a human way, was like, well, this is, must be what it means, because I can't understand that, and so I'm gonna tell you something I can understand. It was that the Father created, and so here he is, and then redemption needs to happen, so he kinda like morphs into the Son, and dies on the cross, and then is like, uh-oh, we gotta fill and lead the church at Pentecost, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna morph again and now be the Holy Spirit. It's God morphing, and it is not, uh, it's not therefore three persons and one God, it's one God and one person, and he just morphs as the occasion fits. It's a heresy, it was condemned. There's also no unity. So if you remove the you and you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, no longer do you have monotheism, you have tritheism. And it's represented here on the screen that, that they are no longer unified as one God, but you have three, in fact, separate gods. This would be akin to Hinduism, who has 30 million gods. I don't know how they arrived at 30 million, nor how they counted them, but it's so. It's not so, actually. There's one God, but nonetheless, is tritheism. This, again, is a heresy that was condemned. And then if you remove the E of equality, what you have is a large father, so to say, that the father is eternal. But then at some point in time, the father was like, well, I'm gonna create an avatar, an emanation, a, a lesser, not deity, because I'm gonna make this the son, Jesus, although there was a time that he did not exist, which makes him not God. He is now created rather than creator. So that's why I represent with a little circle, like, okay, he's kind of a offshoot little guy. There was a time that he was made. And then the Holy Spirit as an elongated rectangle because he's not God at all, according to Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, and various cults, he's not God, he's a force. It is a force, according to them. It just kind of moves like gravity, but is not a person. And so you see the importance of distinction, unity, equality, and that to remove one, you end up in a heresy. And so you have the Athanasian, Nicene, Chalcedon, creeds, that as people were saying, well, what about this? They're like, no, it's not that. And establish these creeds to say what is orthodox, biblical, historical Christianity for the ages, which is what we're talking about today. Now. Let, let's, let's step out of theology seminary land. Uh, every morning, well, the weekday mornings, I sit at the table with the kids and we have a, a little devotional. And you're like, of course you do, pastor and pastor's kids. It, it's not what you think, and I'll, I'll describe. So I sit with a little book and it has, it has a question, a simple question. Friday's question was, of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? 
And they're like, what's ascension? And I'm like, that's when Jesus raised up, when the disciples watched him and he, he went up into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God. And they're like, oh, okay. And I said, so what, what good is that for us? What, what benefit is that to us as believers? And my four-year-old Judd goes, Captain Crunch and monkeys. I'm like, okay, you can go watch TV. Uh, Penny, Hill, like what, what benefit is there to us? And we start to have this dialogue and it's really helpful because instead of me being like, have a seat children, the ascension of Christ under the right hand of the father is for him to intercede on behalf of men and one day he'll come again to reign and judge. And they, I ask them a question and then they get to think about it. We're now having a dialogue, it's so helpful. And I'm gonna invite you to do the same because in case you're like, well, why, where do I get a little book? You're gonna get a little book as you walk out. If you have elementary aged kids, if you have an elementary aged kids, you will walk out with one of these books. It's the New City Catechism for Kids. It's an incredible resource that teaches like theology that's super approachable. And so you don't have to think like, well, how do I have the family devotion? You just ask a question and then you get to engage with them and read the answer. And in case you're like, I'm, I'm getting ripped off because I don't have an elementary age kid, I don't get a little book. Calm down, you can get a little book. It's actually better than the book. Now the parents are upset. Here on the screen, there's a, there's a QR code that you can get the book and you're like, oh great, I have to buy it. Calm down, it's a dollar or two. And the app is actually better than the book. So the app is free. And the app, it has the question, but it doesn't yet tell you the answer. So you get to wrestle with it before you click to have the answer revealed. In the lower left-hand section of the app, it has the scripture that it's based on that you can click on. Then in the middle, it has a commentary to help you understand. Then on the right, it has a prayer that you can personally apprehend the doctrine and truth that you just confessed. It's amazing. So as part of our strategic priorities this year that the elders have set, Two of them are like, we want to strengthen families and we want to deepen theology. Well, I've got this on my mind. And so I go to the elders and I'm like, hey, knock, knock. Um, we've got this book that we do in the mornings. Could we give one to all the like, families? And they're like, absolutely, please do that so that we can all deepen our theology. And, and you need to know if you're not a parent, like get that app and start using it in your community group or your personal devotion because it's so, so helpful. He is knowable, yet unsearchable. And all the persons of the Trinity involve, in, embody every attribute to the nth. So this is important. As we now go from who God is to what he does, if you're like, well, the Father is the one who loves and the Spirit's the one who leads. And so the Father is 100% ultimate to the nth, full of love. The Son is ultimate to the nth, full of love. The Spirit is ultimate to the nth, full of love. All three, and there is one, embody all of those attributes without diminishing one because the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. So now let's talk about what God does. This is like so life-changing. What God does, the economic trinity, God's work in the life of every believer. Don't take my word for it. Here it is, Peter, by the Spirit, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge is not just like, well, I knew that you were going to trust Christ one day, and so I, I kind of knew you were going to make a decision for Jesus. No. He elected, adopted, ordained that you would be his. That foreknowledge is such a pregnant with meaning word. The Father specifically foreknew, adopted, elected in 
the sanctification of the Spirit. So the Spirit, one of his roles is to sanctify, to shape you into the image of Christ. The, the root word of that is hagios, it's holy. His aim is to make you more and more holy as you're led by him. And then thirdly, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. One of the works of the Son here that he reigns, it's obedience, it's a yieldedness to Christ and the commands of scripture, and that the sprinkling of his blood that we place ourselves under him for the forgiveness of sin, not by works, but by grace through faith because of what he did. And then there's other Trinitarian passages that you can think about, like now that we're talking about it, as you're reading the scriptures, you're gonna be like, oh, there's the Trinity at work. Oh, there it is again. So you've got the annunciation to Mary. Angel appears, hey, God has found favor with you. You found favor with God and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be with child and he will save his people from their sins. What? Father, Spirit, Son. Or you have Jesus' baptism where Jesus comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. The Father speaks, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased, do everything, follow him. And so you have the Trinity there. You've got the Great Commission where it says, go therefore and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinity, last verse of 2 Corinthians, very last verse. You can flip to it now if you want. Trinitarian passage right there. God in three persons at work in the life of every believer. So let's talk about God the Father. This is not exhaustive. There's no way it could be, but I just wanna give you two handholds to think as you're thinking about, okay, what work does the Father have in my life? Great work. So I would say the Father elects and the Father loves. The Father elects and the Father loves. Election is a doctrine of he chose you, he adopted you. And you think about adoption. Adoption is unilateral. Like it's not like a, a baby or a two-year-old come to the table and they're like, well, what do you think? What do you want out of life? And how are we gonna, does relationship work? You wanna, you wanna move forward? There's no dating or whatever. It's just like a father, in this case, for the purpose of our illustration, comes in and is like, that child is mine and will be forever for life. They will take my name, I will provide for them, they will live under my roof, they will share in the inheritance of all the children and P.S. spiritually, all are adopted. But there is no clearer picture of the gospel according to the work of the Father than adoption, which is why it says in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined or elected us for adoption. It's adoption. I have, uh, this, I think it was Thursday night, I'm sitting at the table, we're all having family dinner trying to have some semblance of a conversation because Judd is in a sports jersey with like a cocked Santa hat, like he's gangster. And I look over at him and I'm like, what are you doing, it's September. And he's like, he looks at his cup, he's like, I don't want water, I want milk. I'm like, then go get milk. He's like, will you get me milk? I'm like, buddy, I've had a long day. What do you, what are, I, you can go get, and then I was like, you know what, fine, yeah. You know what, you're my boy. That's what dads do, I'll go get you milk. So I went and got a milk. This ridiculous Santa hat four-year-old is telling me as a 46-year-old what I am to do. I'm like, how is it that you're, what, what, is, what is happening here? How am I the one getting you milk? It's because of my love for him. He's not only elect, adopt, part of my family, I love him so deeply 
The neighborhood kids would not be like, they'd never like bust through the door with a Santa hat and be like, yo, Mr. Elmore, how about some Cheetos? Be like, you need to go home right now. But my son does and should. And I think a lot of times we treat God the Father like a neighborhood kid. And we're kind of tiptoeing around like, please, please don't be mad. I, I know I sinned last night, last week, really bad. But if you could please find it in your, he loves you. He elects and he loves and his love doesn't end. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. 1 John 3, 1, how great the Father's love for us that we should be called children and that is who we are. He loves. But as a good parent, his love doesn't end with just love. There is also the aspect of love, which is discipline. We tell our kids all the time, whenever they're experiencing discipline or we've taken away a blessing or given a consequence, we're like, hey, our job is to raise you into adults. We don't wanna send off 18-year-old children into the world. You will be an adult and you need to be raised as an adult. And so that comes with discipline and our discipline is sourced out of our love for you. And so it's an aspect of God's love that he disciplines. It's why we say transformed by Christ to love like Christ. That transformation is not pleasant, but it yields incredible fruit. Hebrews 12, 9 and 10. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, the father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. The discipline is not punitive. It's unto making us and shaping us into the image of Christ that the sin would fall off and sanctification would happen. Proverbs 3.11 says, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, but rather just like receive it because he loves, he's not mad at you, he loves you. That's God the Father. Now we have God the Son. God the Son, in some of his work, I say some because this isn't all, he redeems and he reigns, and we're gonna be in the same passage for that. But before we get to the passage, I wanna tell you a story. So one of our uh, previous teaching pastors, JP, who's down at Harris Creek, when cancer hit, and, and uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, my wife got cancer, she's, she's good now. But when cancer hit, he was near Dallas, and so he made a beeline to our house and just like walked in. And when he walked in, this equally huge guy, JP's 6'3", and you know, knows jujitsu and all sorts of stuff. So here's JP, but an equally good guy, big guy. But the, the big guy on the other side was angry and like looking at him and moving towards him. And this dog, JP reminded me, it's a Rhodesian Ridgeback, was like, <sighs> and he's got flowers. And he says, physically, he started backing towards the door while he got lower and lower. <laughs> And he started saying, Elmore's, Elmore's. I'm a, I, know, I know John Elmore, I'm a friend of the Elmore's. And this guy went from angry to like, oh, they don't live here anymore, they moved. <laughs> he was like, okay, okay, I remember now, I'm so sorry. This is the work of the son. That we would never, be able to enter into the holiness of God and be like, 
what's up, pops? I'm here because I did some good works. The wrath and justice and holiness of God that we would meet in that moment because of our sin and the holiness of God. But like the story, we get low and say, Jesus, Jesus, I'm a friend of Jesus. I've trusted in Jesus. And the illustration breaks down. He already knows who are his, but that wrath and justice has been poured out on the son. And so we can boldly enter to the throne of grace as children and just walk right in and be like, dad, because of the son, it's what I need. He redeems. The only way to the father is through the son. His life, death, and resurrection, John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. He redeems. This is the condescension of the Son. You think like you talk to someone in a condescending tone, like you've been talking down to me. The condescension of Christ is the eternal Son condescending, going low to where we are to rescue us. It's Philippians 2, 6 through 9. And listen for this theological term. This is the hypostatic union of Christ, that he's fully God, fully man. You're like, well, which is it? Yes. It's the best I can do to explain that. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is not that he was no longer God, but that he veiled, in a sense, his glory for a time by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, is the taking on of flesh of God the Son for the purpose of laying down his life and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think about it this way. When we were sleep training our oldest, so, and, and don't send me emails and tell me that sleep training's crazy. We had our way, you have yours, so be it. It's a Romans 14 issue. But sleep training basically means you let them cry themselves to sleep. They've got to self-soothe. They've got to figure out that you can't go in there and rescue them every time. They're like, mom and dad, they'll always keep coming back and say, like, you're okay, you're okay. So you let them be. You check them after 20 minutes because, you know, they could be choking or whatever or that. And so, <laughs> but after 20 minutes and you check them, you put them back and they keep crying, but eventually they fall asleep. Well, that's our first kid. And Laura's telling me this like parenting strategy. I'm like, I'm just pacing outside his room and Hill's just crying, wailing. I'm like, oh man, oh man, oh, she said, don't go in. I can hear like, do not pick him up. If you pick him up, it resets the whole thing. It undoes everything we're trying to achieve. And I'm like, oh, forget it. And I like open the door and I'm like, I hope this crib holds. And I get in the crib with him because she said, don't take him out. Justify anything if you try hard enough. So there I am. It's like a three by two crib. I'm like, if this thing busts, I'm never going to hear the end of it. But I put my arm around him, and the little boy falls asleep. He finds rest because I entered into it with him. I went, he couldn't come to me. I went to where he was. And it's what Jesus does for us. He says, Come to me, any who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, rest for your soul. And because we couldn't go to him in our sinfulness, he came to us and he entered into our mess. But I would say he didn't just enter into our mess, he took our mess. And so every Friday, I get this simple pleasure. It's, there's a little skip in my step, because I'm like, yes! Because all week, there has been this like, 
100 degree incubation of trash that's happening in our garage. All the bags are there, chicken parts, spilled stuff, dairy products, and they're just baking in our garage. Don't look at me like that, you got it too. And on Friday, I take those bags and I walk them to the curb in the back alley, I set them down, and the, and the peace that I feel is, I will never see that again. Gone. Somebody's gonna come and get it, and I'll never see it again. It's not on me, it's gone. And that, the son redeems and he removes your sin. Psalm 103, it says, he's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. And in case you don't know, that's infinite. It says, as a father has compassion on his kids, so the father has compassion on us. And it says, particularly in Colossians 2, that he has taken all of our sin and nailed it to the cross. The decree that stood opposed to us, that said we were guilty, it's just Friday is Sunday. Today is the day that you can be like, all that, it's off me. Satan, stop your lives. Like, I'm taking it. I'm dropping it off at the cross where it rightly belongs. It will not define me. I walked in here with my bags of shame and disgrace and condemnation and accusation, and I'm dropping them at the foot of the cross because the one who redeems removes forever. It's what he does. That's worth clapping about. I agree. There's so much more I could share about Jesus, the Son, God the Son, but the one that I would share is the one, his work that has changed my life so much and is that Jesus reigns. He not only redeems, he reigns. And if you grasp this, you'll move from sanctification, which is all I wanted. I'm like, I'm sorry, from justification, which is all I wanted, where it's like, you know what? I want you to save me from hell forever because that doesn't sound great. So forgive me of my sins and then I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And I stalled out and I wasn't experiencing sanctification because I'm like, you don't reign over my life. I reign over my life. I call the shots. Now he will not impose himself upon you, but he is Christ, he will justify you, and he is Lord, kurios, master, and he reserves the right to reign over you if you allow it, and you allow it. He's given you everything, blessed you with everything in the heavenly realms. Will you then give him everything in the earthly realm because his way is good and it leads to life and peace? This is the continuation of Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Here he is reigning. It's a, it's a majesty in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, is Lord, Master. Overall, Will he be over you? One of our values to be fully surrendered to Christ and that you wouldn't stall out in your sanctification. Jesus is not your homeboy. He is your Lord. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, you must take up your cross daily. Die daily and let Christ reign in every area, every circumstance, every thought, and follow him. My dad uh, was the VP of HR for a hospital network that had thousands and thousands of employees. And as such, because he was VP, he, was, he had a parking space by the VP of 
finance and by the VP of operations and by the C-suite of all the people. And they parked there and my dad's parking spot was empty every single day. He never parked there. And when I would go visit him at work, like if he was gonna take me to a soccer game or whatever, I remember we'd like leave his office and we're like walking through the laundry room and then we'd go out by the dumpsters and the hazmat where they've got the medical waste. And I'm like, what is, who, who designed these hallways? Why are we going out this way? And then we go out to this really far parking lot. And it wasn't until later in life, I think that my mom told me like, your dad would never park in that spot. He, he didn't think he was better than anyone. He wasn't gonna park there. Even though my dad could both hire and fire anyone in the entire network from CEO to the most recent employee. He had that level of authority and yet wouldn't even park in that parking space. My point is with Jesus, do not confuse his humility with passivity. He deserves to reign if he has redeemed you and you will experience so much more of life as you come under the lordship of Christ and not just trust him as your savior. And some of you need to go get alone and get on your knees and say, I've trusted you as savior today and evermore. I'm trusting you as Lord. Be my master, be master of all. That's God the Son, now God the Spirit. God the Spirit indwells and sanctifies. Certainly he does more, but today's purposes indwells and sanctifies. And I'm gonna give a little more here beyond just two because frankly, I think that um, we can be at a, at a deficit of our understanding of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit because I think we can fall in two errors. One is to believe like, too much of the spirit and overemphasize him to the neglect of the son and the father. And we're just like focused on the spirit while neglecting them. We make too much. And then alternatively, I think we can make too little. Like, well, I don't wanna do that, so I'm gonna do this. And just like, I don't know, you're, you're, you're kind of different. Like we can't see you or touch you. And there's some strange stuff that you do, spirit. So we're just gonna be over here. We're not gonna make much of you. And we're not gonna make very much of you at all, frankly. Like that, and, and what is right is to stay right in line with scripture and to say, this is the work of the spirit. And though it is mysterious, he is not a mystery. And I want you to know something. Well, let me start with this to tell you what I want you to know. This is a Civil War bullet. So 200 years ago, 150, this, this could have killed someone. Maybe it did, I don't know. That'd be a little morbid, but nonetheless, it had the power to kill. Now, right now, it's like, it's, it's inanimate, it has no power. At best, it's interesting. You're like, oh, I've never seen a Civil War bullet. Can I touch it? Can I look at it? Can I inspect it? It's interesting at best, but it has no power. That is the preaching of God's word apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Me speaking to you about God's words is interesting at best if it lacks the gunpowder of the Holy Spirit, which is able to pierce souls and move us from where we are in the worship of God. It is interesting at best, but I have no power. I am under no illusion that I have any power to move a single soul, a single inch. God does that. God the Spirit does that. He convicts, it says in John 16, that he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That he's the one that presses upon the conscience like, I am a sinner in need of a savior. And then also, well, let me say, regarding the bullet, I plead with God. The work of preaching, frankly, happens outside of here. I'm pleading with God because of that. Like, 
God, I have no power. I have no power for someone who's dead in their sins to be raised again. I have no power for someone who is saved to be sanctified. I have no power for someone whose love has grown cold, though they're a mature believer, to stir them up. That's your work. And so I'm begging with them. And I would invite you to do the same. Like before Sunday hits, don't even necessarily pray for the preaching. Pray for the spirit to move. And he will. It's what he lives to do. We need only ask. After he convicts, having trusted in Christ, he indwells. This is altogether different than the omnipresence of God. That is an attribute of God. He is omnipresent, meaning he is at the, it it says it in Psalm 139. If I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. If I rise to the heavens, you're there. There's nowhere I can go to escape from your presence. That's omnipresence. That's altogether different than the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because of course, He is omnipresent, but when you place your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, he indwells you specifically and uniquely different from the omnipresence. He is now, it's 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, do you not know that you, not the world, you believer, are a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He's saying you are a temple of the Spirit. Now, is God in the hills and the mountains and the rivers? Yes, those are not the temple of God. You are having trusted in Christ, and he seals you. This is a picture of a king with a signet ring in wax that would press down and say, you're mine, and no one can snatch you from my hands. You're mine. One of our kids, when they pray at night, they'll sometimes say, like, I'm just worried God will forget me. And I'm like, could, do you think I could ever forget you as my son? They're like, no. Then if you've trusted in Jesus, he'll never forget you. You're his. He's got you. Now and forever, he indwells, he seals, and he sanctifies. This is important. I think we all together neglect this. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit, right? And we could all chant it together, and it would be weird, but we're like, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, God, and goodness, you know, self-control, all that. We teach that ad nauseum, and good, we should. But it's to the altogether neglect of an additional work of the Spirit in which he bears the fruit of the Spirit, and he kills the fruit of the flesh. He is the sin killer. He bears the fruit of the spirit. He kills the fruit of the flesh. He kills sin. This past weekend, we were out in the country and uh, on five different occasions, I heard a scream so loud, I thought someone had like knifed Laura. I'm like, what, what in the world? What's going on? And I run over there and she's like, there's a black widow. I'm like, that's not a black widow. Whoa, that's a black widow. And so I took a stick. Tangled it up in the web, put it down, killed it. Next, because my wife and kids, black widows tend to kill people, but I kill black widows. And so it is with the spirit. The sin kills us. You don't tangle with sin, but rather you call upon God the spirit and he kills sin. It's his job. He lives to do it. It's Romans 8, 13. If you walk according to the flesh, you live according to the flesh, you will die. You do what you want to do, you're gonna die. Sin leads to death. But if by the Spirit you put to death, not toy with, not contain, not try to reduce, not struggle with, wrestle with, kind of definite, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live, that he is the means by which, he is the sin killer. 
He teaches us to pray. He gives us words, so we pray in the Spirit. That's Ephesians 6, 18 and Jude 20. And here's the model that he gives us. Throughout Scripture, and not entirely, but greatly in part, you see it a lot in Paul's letters, but he's praying to the Father in the name of the Son by the Spirit. That again, there's this Father, he's sovereign, he reigns and rules, and we enter into his presence only by the Son, and it is the Spirit who's leading us in that prayer, carrying with us. But the last thing that I want to mention, and this is incredible, and I don't think we think about it at all. I think we're like, we think of this as inanimate, Bible, 40 authors, 1,500 years and various languages. It's like, whoa, 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 <laughs> yes, yes, but in the beginning, Second Peter's got something a little different to say that unpacks it further, and it says this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you've got a Bible, hold it up. Or you could use your phone, because I know you got those apps. Every word on every page and every chapter of every letter and book was given to you by the Holy Spirit. And it says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by truth, your word is truth. He's the Theopneustos, the God breath of 2 Timothy 3.16. He gave us these words to reveal the Son, to glorify the Father. The Spirit's work. It's amazing. And we are not Bible deists that believe he has spoken once and no longer speaks. But rather, as you read these words, uniquely, the Spirit will reveal the words, spiritual truths to you. Listen to this. This is what Oswald Chambers says. The vital relationship what the Christian has to the Bible is not that he worships the letter. So we're not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. But that the Holy Spirit makes the words of the Bible spirit and life to him or her. Friends, we are made to worship the one true God who has eternally existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each is fully God and there is one God, this Trinitarian linchpin of Christianity. You remember Thomas Ken, the one who wrote the doxology, the one who defied the king? Well, later in his life, King Charles II, when he was dying, he's on his deathbed, he says to his advisor, Go find me that odd little fellow. And Thomas Ken became a personal chaplain to a dying king whose eternity came into view because of his mortality. And he's like, I don't want anybody who's just gonna placate me and patronize me anymore. I want that one who fears God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Thomas Ken, not holding grudges, went. I bet that man had been praying for King Charles II for, for his life and to have the honor to now come to his side and say, let me tell you about the God you do not know, but you can. And I wonder if the same will be said of us, that as we are made to worship, and as we worship this triune God who is worthy of all our praise and glory, that others might call us to them, neighbors and coworkers and family members and say, Hey, can we talk? Who is he? 
And how can I be saved? Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. We're so lost and dead. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for sending the son to enter into our troubles and not only to enter in, but to take them from us. And thank you for sending the spirit, father and son, for sending the spirit to convict us, to seal us, to indwell us, to gift us, to help us to worship in spirit and truth, to pray in the spirit and to live a sanctified life because you're worthy, you're worthy. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.